Without transcendent God figure, how does Buddhism satisfy mankind's alleged yearning for the infinite? Does the Buddha discuss the idea of the infinite? When I first read the question, I, I did scratch my head a bit because <laughs> do I have a yearning for the infinite? What would that mean? It didn't really spark any resonance in my mind, but um, I, I felt a good idea what it's about. And it's also interesting, the, the, the problem is concepts, isn't it? Like whoever wrote the question or what the infinite might mean for them or something, it's a symbol or placeholder for something like maybe the divine or what the transcendent God stands for, which might symbolize something that we're aspiring towards, or you know, the spiritual yearning, maybe I would say, of, of, of people. And that uh, takes, of course, different forms for, for different people. Now, it started to make sense to me when I formulated that to me, just thinking about yearning for transcending, overcoming the finite, or that which is limited, or that what we perceive, or that I perceive, as, as limiting or restricting. And that can, of course, take different forms or, or come in different guises, but say that would be more like in line with perhaps a more Buddhist way of speaking, the idea of overcoming suffering. No, the suffering, dukkha, that's one way we can talk about what's limiting, no? puts limits on our experience, but also in, in our mundane kind of aspect of experience, no? we're experiencing our limitations. No? It's a, you know, by being this particular, or identifying with being this particular human being, you know, limitations, physical limitations, mental limitations that we might be discontent with. No? Or in, uh, in the more general sense, feeling limited by being in this body or being with this mind, limitations of sensory experience and all that uh, that implies. And then what would the overcoming of those limitations mean? And also, so the Buddha's terms, of course, are you talking about is, is, is usually mostly in, a more in, in kind of practical terms, say the end of suffering, liberation, as a liberation from suffering. Feels almost like an, an aside to, to put in there the, the, the second part of the question, does the Buddha discuss the idea of the infinite? Actually, he does very concretely, but perhaps not in the, in the sense in which it is meant in the question. The concept of the infinite certainly does appear in the, in the Buddhist teaching in various ways and certainly defined in that sense as opposed to something that hasn't got limitations, that's not finite. But not really in the sense of the, something like the ultimate goal of spiritual search or of liberation. It's actually interesting enough, one place, for example, where the Buddha spoke of the infinite is in the context of deep states of samadhi, of, of concentration that we were talking about yesterday. In fact, of experience that one can have that lie even beyond the deepest of the so-called absorptions, or sometimes so-called absor uh, absorptions that we talked yesterday about, kind of more refined states of mind, 
when you are, you know, from the, the way I, I recall it, not from experience, <laughs> from, from reading about it, is uh, hearing about it, when you, you know, say from the force, so-called jhana, absorption, you know, when you realize the limitations of the object, you know, that you, it's the meditation object that you actually focus on, that the mind is concentrated on, you see you tend more to the space in which the object appears, and then you realize that space is infinite. So then, say, you drop, so to speak, if that applies, that, that verb, into the state of the base of infinite space. Well, you're perceiving like space as an infinite space. But that's not the end of it. By becoming dissatisfied and noticing a, a limitation or, or blemish in the, the infinite space, you realize that which actually perceives infinite space is even more pure and has its own purer infinity and if you then turn away from infinite space to that which perceives infinite space then you move into the, yeah, the state of um, the base of infinite consciousness there's even a, you know, a more desirable infinity to abide in but even that's not the end you know? <laughs> beyond that then lies what's called the base of nothingness and then something, if you approach it conceptually, sounds rather confusing. It's, it's perception, but it's not perception. It's certainly something fairly subtle, uh, where perception starts to get to its edge, as it were, of, you know, are we actually, we are not even, say, perceiving nothingness anymore, which is still a perception. And then even beyond that, you can go into the, actually the, the cessation of perception and feeling. So those are particular states that the Buddha talked about, but it's not, certainly not the ultimate. Though actually, it is said if, if, you, if you do attain the cessation of perception and feeling, if you come out of that state, then by definition you're either going to be completely liberated or in the last stage before liberation, if, that is, if you still got attachment to that particular state. But it's interesting in terms of inspiration, you know, longing for the infinite, how inspiring does that sound? You know, the cessation of perception and feeling. Mm. <laughs> Maybe usually as a concept, sounds more attractive and really kind of fed up with everything, isn't it? Just kind of the get me out of here. Stand on, no more perception, no more feeling. You know, let it cease. <laughs> That's probably not precisely what the Buddha had in mind. So the Buddha did certainly talk about something that can be realized, the realization, which you might call the ultimate, ultimate reality, truth, things as they are, Nibbana, you know, what is it? Well, well Nibbana, the very word, carries more the, the connotation of, of cessation, which is the cessation of greed, hatred, and delusion, which fits in the more practical approach that the Buddha talked, you know, just talking about what does it mean in terms of our personal, emotional, psychological reality to realize that. But he would refer to it, say, folks are sometimes as the unconditioned, you know, the unborn, the undying, or something that we could take as an equivalent to maybe what somebody might like to think of as the infinite, without making, of course, any, any positive assertion about whether we're actually talking about the same thing. If you haven't got an experience, we just talk about concepts, isn't it? Which are ideas concocted, of course, from our limited experience. So we dress up whatever things the infinite might be, probably from some ideas, some experience, some perception, some speculation, some proliferation about things that are basically finite. 
and thereby, I mean, by, by placing a concept on it, we make actually something finite out of the infinite. We make an idea out of it. And that was actually part of what the Buddha understood as being a, a concrete, very real problem for human beings thinking about these ultimate religious ideas. The, the Buddha obviously talked about some possibility of a complete different kind of experience that is different from our usual, the, the common, finite experience that we are used to. Well, he would refuse to actually talk about it in positive terms. He wouldn't define it in positive terms. And one of the reasons precisely, if you don't have actually the experience, whatever accurate the language might be for the way that an, an, a realized person speaks about it, we can only misapprehend the concept because we're going to have to translate it, we will translate it back into our unenlightened experience, you know, which might lead us into the wrong kind of direction. And um, the Buddha was certainly also very, very aware of how much we love to cling to ideas and take ideas, concepts for actual reality and then argue, even kill each other for holding different kind of ideas about the ultimate truth. The other reasons also perhaps even more important is, and the Buddha was very specific about it, is that he said that kind of experience cannot adequately be put into words. No. So even to, to try it, to, to say it is already a distortion of that kind of truth, it is beyond language. So at best we can just make a conceptual approximation, and even that, I mean, that's my addition, that's not what the Buddha said, the Buddha would just point to the fact that it's actually beyond language. Because a very language as well is it's finite, a limited thing. It concepts, language is born of our conditioned kind of experience in the world and it's created in order to help us orient, communi communicate and deal with our conventional, ordinary, limited experience, that kind of word. It is a convention. You know? And the reality that the Buddha spoke about, if you like, ultimate reality, he spoke about is beyond any kind of convention. And it's important to remember because I think in sometimes in some Theravada circles of thinking, and I think that has kind of come in through the commentarial tradition, there's become I mean, this idea about conventional reality and ultimate reality, and conventional language and, and ultimate language. For example, you get this, uh, this thing that is say, Conventionally speaking, uh, you've got, we, we have a self, you know, but ultimately that self doesn't exist. Ultimately, there are just the five candas. That's actually not very accurate in terms of how the Buddha actually spoke about it, because even the five candas, big about the five candas, is still conventional reality. Anything that can be spoken about that you can put in words is still part of conventional reality. The ultimate reality, the Buddha was very clear about, cannot be put into words. He pointed that out actually again and again. So not to fool ourselves, the five khandas are not the ultimate reality. It's just another conventional, might be an approximation, but it's still a con conventional approach towards our experience. It might, in some aspects, be more, more useful and more helpful than thinking about things in terms of self or myself. But it's not that you have yourself conventionally that ultimately doesn't exist. What the Buddha said is that a self cannot be found in the created or the uncreated. There's a subtle difference in the way the, the Buddha looks at it. The, the Buddha's approach is actually very, he's actually pointing towards something that's quite pragmatic. He said, if you look for a self 
know, something that is a lasting identity that you could that you could establish a position that you can take that is safe, secure, and lasting. In your actual experience, he said, you you won't be able to find it. No, so it's a, that is the practical advice. Actually, look into your experience. Can you actually find that? And then that search and that finding or not finding. It's through your practice is, is supposed to take you to a practical realization, not to a new idea, or whether I, I have a self, you know, but having an idea that I have a self or the idea that I haven't got a self, or ultimately I haven't got a self, so what? I can't buy any eggs or apples for that idea, but I can, of course, argue with somebody else who thinks I have a self until the cows come home, isn't it? But it doesn't, it's not any helpful for anybody. And again, the Buddha was very specific in warning about it. He called that actually picking up they're teaching the wrong way. It's like picking up the snake from the wrong end. It turns around and it's going to bite you. It's not just about having kind of ideas about your, your true nature or something. It's about investigating the actuality of your experience right now. And they say, so, well, look you know, for self there and then see what you actually find in terms of your experience. And it's a much, much more practical approach. There's even like a discourse where the Buddha was actually you know, quite humorously speaking about how we can hold the view of not self with self. Well, there can actually be a lot of self you know, as an activity, or the, the psychological activity around the idea of not self. Think about when you're talking about attachment, you know, attaching to views. Well, that is very much like you, you create this identity, identifying yourself as having no self. Well, because I'm a Buddhist, I have no self. <laughs> Uh, maybe Christians, they have a soul. That's what, they, that's what they think, you know. But I know better, you know, as a Buddhist. I've read the Buddhist teaching, so I know I have no soul. And I can actually invest a lot of self in there. It's to say if somebody else is going to argue with me, I really get upset. Or I get upset about, you know, somebody claiming to be Buddhist and somehow having a different view about it. So the, the self, in that sense that the Buddha was talking about, is something much more immediate, something more practical than some ideas. It's an activity, isn't it? How do we identify with things? Taking a position around reality. Notice, so what this letting go, if you see there is no position really that we can safely establish that is going to hold, what all those practical teachings about investigating our experience and what we are doing there are supposed to lead to in terms of you know, letting go of attachment, releasing attachment, then our experience is going to start to manifest to ourselves in a different way. So I was talking about there being a radically different way of experiencing being possible. That will mean that we are not creating any suffering around any of our experience. And that has to do with there's something that we realize, something about the nature of our experience that's different. Obviously, that's significant. No? And that, that allows this this realization, this letting go of creating problems around our experience. He didn't refer to it in, in positive terms. He sometimes referred to it in, in negative terms. You distort it if you talk about it positively, but you can say what it's not. And so categories like the unconditioned or the unborn or the undying you know, would fall into that, that category. So what does it mean? It's not born, so, it, so therefore it doesn't die. You know? It's um, it's not conditioned, no, but so what is it? You know, it's not, you're not giving a positive kind of definition. For example, well, is it infinite or is it is it endless? No, it certainly the Buddha didn't talk about it in the sense of I think what philosophers call I think bad infinity. 
uh, like one moment after another, you know, forever. It, times it never ends. No, I think that's 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 usually called bad infinity. You know, it's just you just add more, you know, more and more and more and more and more and more, and just never ends. You know. But like, say, an, an infinity or, or endlessness, which I don't know whether that term exists, but which would be good, infinity or something, no, he'd call it, it's timeless. Again, one of those negatives, archaico. It's not of the nature of time. Time doesn't apply. Beginning doesn't apply. Ending doesn't apply. Because time doesn't apply. Space doesn't apply. So one, one thing that we perhaps realize is that logically, as far as we still apply logic, that merely implies, isn't it? If those categories don't apply, then somehow language can't apply either. Because our language deals with things um, that exist somehow, either in space or at least in time. Our, our ordinary experience is of space and time. So Buddha said that experience is not, it's not of time. It's not an endless experience. It's not endless. But it's, it's not of time at all. It doesn't, time doesn't apply. So it's in, in a totally different kind of category. If category still applies, <laughs> if people would seriously come with this more metaphysical kind of questions, what I would refuse to answer. There's these ten kinds of of questions, you know, and among them, is the universe infinite or is it finite? Has it a beginning uh, or not? Has it an end or not? You know, what about the Buddha after the final parinibbana? Does he exist or does he not exist? Or does he both exist and not exist? Or neither exist nor not exist? Those are the four kind of the tetralemma of, of Indian logic, isn't it? That has four rather than two in, as, a, as a Greek or European logic. The Buddha always would say, no, none of that applies. But he would be quite specific in terms of what that realization, once that is realized, would, how that would manifest in a person, in a concrete historical person that you can see and touch, and somebody he would talk about people who have realized this truth, what effect it would have in the way that how they would actually manifest, how they would relate to the world, to other people. And that's something very tangible. For a start, the Buddha's classic definition was, well, the, the Nibbana, that's the end of greed, hatred, delusion. And somebody who uh, has no more greed, no more aversion or hatred, no negativity, and no delusion no, uh, about the nature of their experience, they still got experience, but they would relate to their experience in a very different way. Mm-hmm. There's no aversion, there's no, there's no greed, there's no, no particular preference that needs to be met. There's fearlessness. They won't have any fear of anything because they're not attached to anything being in any particular kind of way. It's, they know they have, they're in touch with a, with a space in themselves where anything is ultimately all right. It might not be good. It might not could be better. It might be that there could be more desirable kind of things. But at deep down, one isn't ruffled with that. It's just it's the way it is. It's fine. And it doesn't become a personal problem. So there's a deep equanimity. Also, the Buddha was, was clear about it. Somebody who has understood, really understood to the root of it, suffering and the cause of suffering, will therefore, by definition, be unable to consciously do anything that would harm themselves or other people. They would spontaneously live according to the ethical standards which are encoded in the five precepts. They wouldn't be able to break those intentionally. An enlightened person, an around a free person, still can make a, a mistake. They can still misread a situation or something. There are examples for that in the suttas. But they wouldn't intentionally uh, cause harm to anybody. They might cause harm with somebody by accident, I mean, because you know, they, they, they didn't properly read a situation. But they wouldn't do it intentionally, impossible. A heart that is liberated will naturally be kind. 
a heart that's naturally kind will naturally respond to suffering with compassion. Also, there are certain things that, are, that, that will manifest uh, in a person that has realized you know, what the Buddha calls the true nature of things, right? ultimate reality, uh, if you want to call it that way. Now, something in that direction has been what's been most, certainly most inspiring for me, also for my own search, for my spiritual longing. I might have started off, I do remember starting off with no particularly, I'm also, I, I tried to study philosophy, for example, and then mainly I just realized that gave me headaches. And so then I, I was looking for something more practical and, and starting to explore spiritual traditions, came to meditation and some meditation to Buddhism. But a lot of my, at least the conscious part of my search, had been formulated a lot in, in classical kind of metaphysical quest, questions, you know, within the European tradition. You know, what's, what's the meaning of all, all of this? You know, the intuition, there must be a meaning somehow. But I, when I came across, you know, the, the Buddhist teachings through the suttas, I realized there's this very radical and direct and immediate approach of the Buddha, which seemed to point to the fact, rather than giving to me answer for this metaphysical question, was pointing to what's actually happening right there in my mind right now, when I was making and insisting, uh, making those metaphysical questions and insisting on trying to find answers, how that itself, right now, in that moment, was creating suffering. And I was creating suffering for myself just by trying to insist on answers for questions that, well, I have basically invented myself. You know, I mean, who is looking for meaning? And only, that's, of course, only in the mind can look for, there's no guarantee, I mean, the world. I mean, whatever it is, <laughs> no, it doesn't. Maybe it doesn't need any meaning. I guess. I mean, it's not. It's it's me, isn't it? The, the human mind who's looking for meaning. You know, I'm I'm assisting then on on looking for some answers. And just to then the Buddha just reflecting that directly back. What are you actually doing? You know, look at that process in your mind. It's something that you're actually doing right now. You know. So I'm coming back to this. The how the Buddha would always his teaching would would always even if you would start off with something apparently metaphysical or some statements about the nature of reality, you would always turn that actually towards categories that you can use to, ex to examine your experience right now. Ah, now this is a mental formation in the Buddha's words. By actually holding on to that, I'm actually creating suffering right now. And I could actually see that. I could see that finger of the Buddha pointing at me very directly. Oh, so it didn't mean that I therefore then could just let go, but I could see at something, aha, that something that makes sense, what the Buddha was insisting on, isn't it? The liberating truth that one can trace is timeless and also means it's not it's not in the future or somewhere it's, it's, it's actually something you can connect to probably right now you know and what can i see right now what can what can i see in terms of my suffering right now where is it coming from does it have to do with something that i'm doing is it something that i can stop doing maybe i recognize why i can't but i can maybe have an intuition what might be the difference if i could and that can be, start to become an inspiration, even if you don't get maybe a, can really have an idea of what it, what, what it would mean to not, have, not really be attached to anything. But we have some more limited experience of the difference that it made when we can let go of some of our attachments, or if we can lighten some of our attachments. In terms of actually direct experience of what is actually going on in our mind and our heart, what are we actually doing? What is the taste of attachment? So I started with that and felt a bit nonplussed. You know, this, this reaction coming my well, I can't beat that kind of thing. You know, it was all my sophisticated kind of questions and looking for answers and comparing different kind of answers by different traditions. Huh. 
the Buddha didn't play that game. He didn't give another answer that I could either believe or not believe about the nature of the infinite. He would rather point to the nature of that very thinking about concepts and what they do to us and what they can do to us if we cling to them, if we really believe them. And that's something really, I felt, something really profound to, to think about. We can look about it in terms of what's happened on, on, in the world if we, if we look at the news, religious wars, war, or, or you know, wars fought over ideologies or religions, creeds, you know, concepts, ultimately beliefs. We can look about that in terms of what ha happens in maybe some of our personal relationships where we get into arguments about views and opinions, views and opinions about the ultimate, <laughs> perhaps, hopefully not. And very directly in our own mind, even in our thinking, you know, how we get ourselves confused and worked up about trying to understand something which we haven't got the experience really to understand. No? We, sometimes we don't realize we're just juggling concepts. And concepts are just concepts. There's something that they can do, something that they can't do. <laughs> no? But then, uh, crucially, kind of what, what happened to me is meeting a person basically, my first teacher, who became my first teacher, who seemed to me to be embodying some of these, these qualities. Somebody who seemed to have what I was looking for. Somebody who seemed to have peace. It was, was an enormous amount of peace and compassion. And incredibly kind. Never met any person like that. Kind and patient. And just, just having this kind of in a kind of contentment and radiance, happiness, and a softness and kindness, but at the same time, you know, somebody who could be, who could be very firm and very decisive, but I don't think I've never actually seen him angry or upset. Well, there was this person, and I was living in a, in a meditation center in Sri Lanka. He had a little room which was placed between the kitchen it's taken on the corridor between the kitchen and the meditation hall, the most busiest place in the whole center. It had very little things in it, and crucially, it didn't even have a door. So this person would have a very virtually no privacy at all. And there were, this was a very open kind of meditation center, not, like, not quite like here. So the people would turn up there all the time, you know, with, without booking. You know, some in the hills of Sri Lanka, I mean, they didn't have email, or <laughs> you know, letters would take a long time to get there. So most people just arrived there at any time of the day, stay for as long as they wanted to stay, and then they would leave on their own terms. And they wouldn't necessarily always be well-behaved. They wouldn't, a lot of them be Westerners uh, coming for the first time into meditation, having much clue about etiquette and how to do things rightly, and being, having, you know, like we tend to have, in particular as Westerners, very demanding kind of self-centered egos, you know. I'm the most important thing about the universe, and now I'm coming here to become enlightened, or to find the teacher who's going to sort out my problems for me. So people coming to him, always looking for help, trying to get something out of him. He would just, you know, didn't, wouldn't get stuck on anything, just roll along with it, and unflappable. Yeah, so I was incredibly impressed. I mean, now that was inspiring, and still now to me, I mean, I think that's the most inspiring kind of experience I ever had kind of in my life. Something like that, you know, in flesh and blood, to me, I mean, certainly become much more inspiring than any kind of abstract concept about the infinite. Well, that's, what does that mean? You know, who knows? That person definitely seemed to be infinitely kind and infinitely patient, that's all I could see. And I remember this kind of thought at one point being there, coming up and saying, wow, you know, if I could be like him, I want to be like him, you know, that would be really great. 
And then my mind went kind of tick, 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 tick. <laughs> and I thought, oh, do I really want to be like him? Do, do I want to live in a room without a door, with all those people coming all the time, bothering me with their kind of petty kind of problems and views and opinions? And hmm, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I want to have that peace and radiance, but, but people, you know, leave me in peace. Thank you. You know, just a hut somewhere. I saw myself as a hermit. You're total, totally left in peace. But still somehow be admired for being incredibly enlightened by everybody. Well, how, that, that's, how does that go together? You know, it doesn't quite work, isn't it? So I certainly suddenly instantly noticed also the enormous gap that there must have been between my way of experiencing life and his way of experiencing. Perhaps why the Buddha would have preferably have talked about it in this more concrete terms, you know, about how it manifests in a human being, you know, and, and, and you, you know, could see it in his own example, of course, and the example of his disciples. That's what usually tended to inspire certainly people searches in his own time, people talking about the ultimate in one way or another and arguing about it endlessly were around enough. You know, people didn't need another inspiring idea about the ultimate. You know, but what would actually convince them was what somebody was able to manifest. Mm -hmm. And that links in into this uh, second uh, question, which basically is, is talking about the relationship between words and speech and the, the, the practice and how our practice kind of affects our way that we relate to language and speech and um, can there be an explanation in Theravada for the liveliness that the words or representations of a highly attained being sometimes have and well that's a bit what I've already talked about isn't it and one, I guess one would expect that no, or if somebody who has actually realized and has, has abandoned uh, greed, hatred, and delusion, a person that is fearless, you know, a person that is perfectly content in any situation, personally, you know, in terms of their needs, doesn't have any needs that need to be met in order for them to be content. Somebody who is spontaneously, naturally kind, patient, who hasn't got any emotional energy stuck in neurotic patterns, no? Will, ha will have a lot of energy available, will be very alive. And of course, so will be their speech. One would expect that. That's part of what can be very impressive. But on the other hand, uh, practically speaking, also, as is, I think a, a note of caution is also useful. We, we also have to be careful not to be fooled just by appearances. Because all that said, there's also the element of personality. And so, of course, I mean, by deeper realizations, one would expect parts of personality certainly going to be affected, might, might change, and, you know, presumably, of course, for the good. But still, there isn't, there isn't some kind of prototype kind of enlightened personality that all fit in. That doesn't, that doesn't seem to be how it works, neither in theory nor in actuality, it seems. We all have, of course, particular personality structures, and part of it is not going to be affected by realization. It doesn't have to be. This is not the point. And so, for example, um, this person here that's captured here in this photograph, Ajahn Man, like he was known to be very um, eloquent and also very fierce. I mean, most people, most of the time, were rather afraid of him because he was just very sharp, very direct, quite fierce kind of energy, apparently, but also very eloquent. No, and his teaching was famous for that. And, and, and so he became kind of the father, as it were, of the modern Thai forest tradition. You know, those people, uh, monks uh, and some nuns, so, you know, being uh, very keen on meditation and ascetic life, being inspired by him and seeking him out 
and looking for his guidance. But actually, being the father of the modern Thai forest tradition, he had actually companion as he ran the Holy Life. There are actually two of them. You know, they, they actually spent a lot of time together and they were actually recognized as the fathers of that tradition. The other one, I think his name was Lung Po Sao. Not much more, uh, as far as I know, kind of remains of records than a few photographs of this very rather kind-looking, soft-looking, radiant, kind, soft-looking person, monk, and a few anecdotes, and because he apparently didn't speak very much at all. He wasn't very much inclined to speak. No, he was by um, his disciples and, and friends and followers of you know, the, the first generation of the followers of Ajaman and Lung Po Sao, was very, very respected for you know, recognizing his purity, his solidity in the, in the practice, and he was usually recognized, though he seemed to be an, a completely liberated being. But he didn't teach. Well, he did teach through example, but he didn't have much to say. You know, it wasn't just this way. So if we come along and, and, and search for an inspiring teacher who's going to give us rousing kind of talks and inspire us, well, you might come in this and say, well, this guy, you know, to me doesn't seem to have much to say, you know, so you're going to start to be disappointed and look for a different teacher. No? And then we might come uh, to a different teacher who has got a lot of things to say <laughs> and a lot of energy. And that, of course, would be very impressive. You know, wow, you know, this, this guy must see got something going, isn't it? May probably enlighten, you know. Can for, talk for 24 hours, doesn't get tired. So what, uh, so what we need to take into account, what happens, you know, somebody being, having a lot of presence and charisma, being in some ways quite, apparently positive ways, impressive, you know, even maybe having a lot of kindness, patience, unfatigable kind of energy to receive people and so forth, it's not necessarily, of course, a sign for having attained freedom from suffering, having had a deep realization. What you need, basically, is a lot of energy. And energy, we can get energy from a lot of different things. Like, faith can give a lot of energy. Thing like, for example, the Buddha and also advocated some, some, some form of faith as a spiritual faculty, but was very characteristically for his teaching, always pointed out, faith needs to be balanced by wisdom. No, face without wisdom is actually dangerous. You know? And mindfulness, or sati, you know, is what should look over the fact that you have actually the right balance there between face and wisdom. You know? Face without wisdom can still give you a lot of energy, but that energy can actually go off into, the, into un, unhelpful kind of directions. Deep concentration, we talked about that yesterday, can give you a lot of energy. You know, it purifies the mind. It's actually one of the things, I was talking about it yesterday, it refreshes the mind. It's one way of, you can reach, the mind can recharge its batteries. You know, usually, characteristically, people who have a very strong concentration, for example, don't need to sleep very much because the mind actually finds rest and concentration. And that in itself can, of course, be very impressive. And people sometimes take that as some kind of indication that, oh, wow, you know, Ajahn so-and-so. I, I, I checked it out, actually, he only sleeps two hours every night. You know? So he must have something going for him. No, there was definitely proof for that. But yeah, he probably had very deep concentration, good concentration, probably, I imagine. The Buddha was quite clear about, you know, to find out about the qualities of a person, you're really going to have to be with them for a long time and observe them carefully and see how they respond in different situations. You know, not only when the going is good, you know, how do they respond when in situations of difficulty, you know, for example, and things like that. You, know, you, you check them out. And of course, with our own limited wisdom uh, and information, we cannot always know, but at least we, we, we can be, we try to be careful, you know, not just 
follow an initial inspiration, you know, but follow that up a bit with you know, checking a bit out, you know, not only what, what they're saying, you know, how much does it really make sense, the wholeness of their appearance, are there some elements maybe that we feel, hmm, I'm not sure about that, because if you get really inspired by somebody, it's a little the same like when we fall in love, isn't it? Often when we fall in love with some, somebody, we just look at their, the sides that we, we like about them or, or found attractive, or even we project something onto them you know, that we like to see in them. And all the stuff that maybe doesn't quite fit in, well, we find out about that if we actually do get together with that person in the night <laughs> when the first glow disappears and all the bits that, you know, first we very, only very, very willing, more than willing to overlook, to not look at them, they become very apparent. <laughs> the same, of course, maybe with a teacher or an apparently attained person that at the beginning of, impresses us a lot, though we maybe we kind of fall in love with them because they seem to hold that which we are longing for. Something very similar to romantic love there, you know, and of course we also get mixed up with those things, you know. Romantic ideas, you know, maybe not of an erotic kind, but different kinds of romanticism, spiritual romanticism, starts to get mixed in, you know. So we start to idealize people so that we can feel good about having found our ideal of somebody and then we become followers. I just want to be careful. Just it's safe, you know. If you can at early stage start to argue, and well, but there are a few things I'm not so sure about. No? So just keep looking, you know. So it's better, of course, not to put people on pedestals too early. Then, you know, they won't have to fall down from the pedestal, and we can have, you know, perhaps less glowing but more realistic and safer relationship also to to, to other people and spiritual teachers.